0: You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast, part of the Locked On
1: Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Today's episode is brought to you by Pepsi. This football season will be different, and Pepsi is here to get you ready for game day no matter how you watch this season. Pepsi is a refreshment you need to power through game day and become a member of the League of Football Watchers. These passionate fans are the real generational talent that Pepsi fuels. Because Pepsi isn't made for those who play the game, it's made for those who watch it. Pepsi, made for football watching. Happy Friday to you. It's the last time we're going to get a chance to talk before the Buffalo Bills take on the Denver Broncos on Saturday afternoon with an AFC East division on the line. If the Bills win this football game, it is clinched. Not only a playoff berth, but the division championship. And folks, I can't wait to buy the merch. I I think I'm going to buy so much of it that in 50 years, I'm going to be selling it on eBay because I'll have so much. I can't wait. But first, got to take care of business. Got to come away with this dub. And uh, I am encouraged that will happen. Here's what I have on tap for you today. The first segment, we're gonna do three more herd mentality items. I, I talked about this yesterday. I don't always get to the late ones, but these late ones were really good this week and very timely. So I have three that i've I've held for today in our opening segment. In segment two, we're going to talk to banged-up Bills Dr. Kyle Trimble. We're going to talk about the injury situation, which which looks pretty good right now. But there's a couple guys we need to touch base on, and uh, Dr. Trimble is going to talk to us about the dynamics of playing at Mile High Stadium in Denver and the altitude and how that uh, is going to be a challenge for and why it's going to be a challenge for the Bills this weekend. And then lastly, I have my predictions for you my game predictions for saturday so let's start with these herd mentality items first one comes from landon landon asks with the playoffs coming up could you rank the teams the bills could possibly play in the first round based on who you would want to play to who you would most be nervous to play thank you and stay safe all right so i think there's six teams that the bills have a chance of facing in the first round of the playoffs and i'll give them to you in order uh, like Landon asked, of, of who I would want to play the most down to the who, who I would be the most nervous about. And number one, I want to play the Miami Dolphins. I think it's a team that the Bills have proven success against. They'll have a rookie quarterback in the playoffs in January in Buffalo, a defense that Josh Allen has absolutely figured out. Give me the Dolphins, even though it's back-to-back weeks, even though it would be potentially beating them three times in one year. The team I want to play the most is the Miami Dolphins. Number two, I want to play the Las Vegas Raiders. I want to see that team come across the country, again, playing outside in January in Buffalo, against a team that hasn't had success under John Gruden to the level where they have that playoff experience. right? I think they've gotten better every year under Gruden, but that first taste of playoff action is different, and I want to face a team like that, one that the Bills have already proven they can go on the road and beat, a team that doesn't have much... Uh, In the way of difference makers on defense, I think that's a a manageable opponent for the Bills. Uh, Thirdly, I have the Indianapolis Colts. Good defense, um, but Phillip Rivers outside January. I like my chances with that. Um, You know, they've got some nice pieces on offense around Rivers, but I don't know if he'll be able to throw it if there's any type of elements whatsoever. Number four, I have the Cleveland Browns. They make me a little bit nervous because of their rushing attack. Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, really good offensive line. Um, Then they kind of base everything off of that, or a lot of 12 personnel and getting the tight ends involved and that type of stuff. Um, but defensively I think it's a team that the Bills could really handle. Um, Obviously, Miles Garrett's a difference maker, but I don't know how many other difference makers they have in that defense. So right in the middle of the pack is the Cleveland Browns. They make me nervous with that rushing attack, but I think the Bills could easily score on them. Now the last two teams that I think are a possibility, these would be my least preferred opponents. Number five, they have the Tennessee Titans. Um, You know, That's a team that's tested, right? They went to the AFC Championship game last year. I know that the Bills – can beat Tennessee. They beat them last year, but obviously it was a a challenge for them this year, and they have really good playmakers on on the perimeter. They have Derrick Henry. They have good players on defense. They're not performing well, but I I just think with the battle-testedness of that team, it it makes me pretty not interested in playing them in the first round uh, if possible. And then lastly, and maybe you'll be surprised by this because I know their season hasn't gone quite like they probably hoped, but it's the Baltimore Ravens, and um, I know, like I said, they're not—they're not the same team they were last year. Lamar's not playing at an MVP-caliber MVP level, but he's still Lamar. He's still dynamic as an athlete, which makes him really difficult to manage. And defensively, they just have a lot of speed and athleticism, and guys that can turn over the football. Um, so, I just uh, that'd be the team I don't want to run into. To be honest with you, a, a team that probably is going to be inspired going into the playoffs with messaging like, yeah, things didn't go the way we wanted to this point, but we're in this thing. Let's go get it. They've had two um, first-game playoff exits over the last two seasons, so you know they're hungry to right the ship in the playoffs, and so I I prefer to avoid that. So I have it. Just to recap quickly, Dolphins 1, Raiders 2, Colts 3, Browns 4, Titans 5, Ravens 6. I guarantee you the Bills will play one of those six teams in the first round of the playoffs. The second one comes from David, and the second and third one, they're really both about Dawson Knox, but I'll I'll answer them independently with different, different information. David says, I'm hearing talk of Knox not being the guy at tight end. I also heard that he is a top athlete and could be great at another position. What might be an appropriate position for him to switch to, and how hard would that switch be? I'll be honest with you. I have no interest in moving Dawson Knox to a different position. He's already a converted quarterback to tight end. I mean, I don't even know what position he could play that makes sense for him based on his physical traits. Maybe linebacker, but you're talking three years away from being anything meaningful at linebacker. I think he's in the exact spot at tight end to give him the best opportunity to have a meaningful NFL career and help the Buffalo Bills. It's the best spot for him and the football team. So I I just don't think there's another spot that makes any sense because there's no offensive spot outside of tight end that makes sense. And you start talking linebacker and that's just a multi-year project. And I I think you're exactly right in him being a top athlete. And I think that athletic profile can be the most meaningful for him and the Bills at tight end. Now, Jack says, I have two questions for you. A lot of discussion has been made about Josh Allen's relatively small number of passing repetitions coming into the league compared to guys like Baker Mayfield, and much of his improved play can be attributed to simply him getting more reps. Do you think a parallel can be drawn with Dawson Knox's inordinate amount of drops to the fact that coming out of college he did not have a lot of game reps? Do you think he is a guy who will ever have NFL-quality hands, or is that something which will adequately improve with more experience? Also, when the Bills signed Tyler Medicavich to a healthy contract to exclusively play special teams, I guess I was expecting at least a poor man, Steve Tasker, but I rarely have seen him flash on punt and kickoff coverage, and he's not even the best on the Bills at that. This distinction belongs to Daryl Johnson, a 6'7 defensive lineman. Do you think at this point, Medicavich is a surefire cap savings cut at the end of the year? So we have three things to respond to here. Number one, I want to talk about the reps thing with Josh Allen. I want to talk about Dawson Knox and his ability to develop his hands. And number three, Tyler Medicavich, his impact on special teams and and his salary cap figure. So first, let's talk about the rep discrepancy between Baker Mayfield and Josh Allen. And I'm not this kind of person where I I feel like I I want to be credited for things, but the person who introduced this – entire discussion point to the public was me. I had a conversation with an NFL scout at a college football game that I was covering and we were talking about our quarterback rankings from the 2018 NFL draft class. And he was talking to me about his team and the order that they had the quarterbacks and why they had them in that order. And their number one quarterback on their board was Baker Mayfield. The number two quarterback on their board was Josh Allen. And I asked him why they had them in that order. And he said, we believe Baker Mayfield, between games and practice, has 10,000 more reps than Josh Allen. And for us, if we're going to take a quarterback, we wanted somebody who was closer to their ceiling in year one. And and so that was something that I shared, and it has taken on a life of its own, and and I've I've heard it referenced a lot, and I'm not asking credit to be credited every time it comes up, but you know I'm the person who acquired this firsthand information, and, and so I can tell you about that firsthand discussion, and and the more you think about it, you know I do think those reps are a contributing factor in Josh Allen and and where he was as a rookie to where he is now, and why it's taken as much time as it has, despite his really incredible physical gifts and why Baker Mayfield exactly has been exactly what that scout said year one. He he was probably about as good as he'll ever be. He regressed a bit last year and he's showing some life this year, but you know, you don't feel like there's a super high ceiling for him to develop into. And I think that's a great discussion point that is going to help me with quarterback evaluation as I continue my career scouting NFL, NFL prospects. So, um, yeah, that discussion point was one that I brought to the table, and I think it's very true. And I do think, to an extent, you can apply that towards Dawson Knox and really, you know, other football players just being mindful of how much experience they have and how much time on task they have for the role that they're going to be asked to fill in the NFL. And when it comes to Dawson Knox, like we've talked about so many times, he was a high school quarterback. He transitioned to tight end for Ole Miss in an offense that really didn't feature tight ends, and as a matter of fact, Dawson Knox entering the NFL, in his entire college career, he played 1,095 snaps at tight end, at Ole Miss in an offense that didn't feature him, that's it, total, his entire life, 1,095 snaps at tight end, let's talk about his drop rate, and I've been very critical of Dawson Knox and his drops. But what's the reality of his drop rate? Let's go back to 2017 at Ole Miss, his first year ever playing tight end. He was targeted 34 times. He had three drops. That's a drop percentage of 8.8%. In 2018, he was targeted 28 times. He had one drop. That's a drop rate of 3.5%. Now he gets to the NFL. It's his rookie season. He winds up being a starter as a rookie after 1,095 snaps ever in his life at tight end. He has 53 targets and nine drops, a drop rate of 16.9%. So 8.8 down to 3.5. Welcome to the NFL. You're up to 16.9. So far in 2020, he's been targeted 29 times. He has two drops. That's a drop rate of 6.8%. I think we can look at this data, and while it's not a large sample size, I think we can all acknowledge that the 17% last year was an anomaly. That's not what he's normally been. And then I feel like because that is what our exposure is to Dawson Knox, his first impression to us was that he drops the football a lot. We feel a heightened sense of frustration when he drops it this year because of that first impression. But the reality is that drop rate was probably 10% of what his norm is going to be. Again, he's already improved it. He's down 10% in drop rate this year. So I think, number one, let's acknowledge that his drops have gotten better. And number two, let's be reminded of how raw this player is, how athletically gifted he is. I'll say this. This is not a hot take. This is just a fact. Dawson Knox is one of the five most athletic tight ends in the NFL. And you've seen the flashes of playmaking ability. You saw his ability to block. He can do all this stuff. You just got to give him some time. So, yeah, you know what? In a lot of ways, Dawson Knox is the Josh Allen of tight ends. Let's not give up on him because there's a really special physical skill set here and a guy that's worked extremely hard, and I think we are we are not giving him enough credit for how new he is to the position, how much of a curve it is to play tight end in the NFL, the fact that he's had injuries right last year as a rookie, the hamstring all training camp long, this year the concussion – COVID. I mean, he's had a lot of adversity so far in his career. He's worth investing considerably more time in to see what you have. And I'll tell you what, the Bills like him because when he was healthy, the second he got healthy, Tyler Croft was inactive. He's a healthy scratch. He doesn't even dress on game day. So this is very much a player that it feels like the Buffalo Bills are committed to, and he has a very, very, very high ceiling that he can grow into and become a difference maker for this team at tight end. The last item was about Tyler Medikevich and his role on special teams and the impact that he's making or not making, and if he's justifying his contract. Well, the reality is he's a pretty expensive player given that he only plays special teams, but. I think he has contributed to this bill special teams being better. I think we can all agree that the bills are covering kicks and punts this year, far better than they did last year. And so I think he has been a net positive to the team. Now it comes, when it comes to special teams, tackles, uh, Saran, Neal and Taiwan Jones, they have the most special teams tackles on the team with five. And then at second is Daryl Johnson and Tyler Medikavich who both have four. Um, Tyler Medicavich is also very good on the punt return and kick return units where he blocks. So it's not just about tackling on punt and kick coverage. It's what he does blocking as well. And, of course, a very heads-up play that he delivered fielding that surprise onside kick uh, earlier in the season. So it's going to be tough for us to really appreciate Tyler Medicavich and his impact on the team because he doesn't actually help the defense and he has a sizable contract, but he is a guy that is regarded as one of the best special teams players in the league, and I think he's met expectations. And so if the Bills think that $3 million a year is worth it for his impact, then I don't really have a problem with it um, because I do think that his efforts and his contributions to the team have been a net positive for the Bills special teams on all phases of teams where the Bills, I think, are are considerably better than they were a year ago. So uh, that's that's the cost of doing business and having good special teams units. It's investing in players just like Tyler Medikevich and having guys like Taiwan Jones and having the Saran Neals of the world and the Dean Marlowe's of the world and the Jaquan Johnson's of the world. Those guys help. And it's not necessarily from an offense or defense perspective. It's what they do in multiple phases of special teams, which is an important part of fielding a winning team. Joined now by Kyle Trimble, doctor of physical therapy. He runs bangedupbills.com. You can follow him on Twitter at bangedupbills, and he joins us each week to get us ready for the Bills game as it relates to the injury front And The injury report looks really, really good, and we got a couple of guys to talk to, but what I want to lead off today in this discussion with Kyle is talking about the dynamics of the Buffalo Bills playing in Denver and the high altitudes and what that means, because I think that's, you know, maybe some people don't think the Bills should struggle with the Denver Broncos and it's a game that they should win. They're seven point road favorites. But the reality is, there's a dynamic with this game based on where it's played in altitude that creates some challenges. And actually, we had a listener email me earlier in the week that specifically said, Hey, when you have Dr. Trimble on, can you guys talk about the altitude and why it's a concern? And so I want to get out of the way and hear from Kyle, what he has to say about the bills playing at altitude on Saturday.
0: Okay. So I'll put this out as a disclaimer at the beginning. There's a lot more to this than what I'm going to touch on we could probably talk a good hour on this if we wanted to, but I'm going to try to touch on some of the basics. So you can understand things. And so it makes sense because otherwise we're getting really down into like exercise physiology and some of the different things we see with cardiopulmonary uh, issues. So I'm not going to try to dive too deep into it, but I'm going to try to just gloss over and kind of give an idea why this is a uh, more difficult issue. Uh, so, I'm going to give you two numbers here first. So Buffalo is 600 feet above sea level. Denver is 5,280 feet above sea level, which is one mile. So there's obviously going to be a big difference on how the air pressure is related to that. The higher you go up in the air, the less air pressure there is to breathe in. So what that means is there's going to be more pressure on the lungs, the outside air pressure, that affects the air coming into the lungs. That's why there's that negative pressure that when you breathe in, the air comes sucking into your lungs there. That's why when you have a punctured lung, that's an issue. We saw that with Drew Brees. That's why you've got to make sure there's an air differential so that you know, the positive air, the negative air, that air can exchange uh, freely. Otherwise, it just stays stagnant if it's at equal pressures. So when we're at the Buffalo 600 feet, we're by used to that there. When we go up to Denver, we're higher up in the air there's less air pressure, which means it takes more effort for the air to come into the lungs. It's minimal when you look at the grand scheme of things, but there's just more effort that requires the body to bring the air in. Your body does acclimate to that. It takes about one to two weeks from what the literature says, but there is a noticeable enough difference that can affect you mostly after two or three days. One benefit is that buffalo is going to fly in and fly out, so that might be minimally a minimal adverse reaction to what's going on though, though it's still, it can still impact them. So looking at VO two max VO two max, I'm going to pull up Wikipedia because everybody uses that is the maximum rate of oxygen consumption measured during incremental exercise. That is exercise of increasing intensity. So at some point your body can, Take on so much oxygen at that time, and it's, it's basically it's redlining as much as it can go. You're not going to be able to maintain a uh, full-blown exercise intensity for long duration of time. But if you're sprinting and if you're doing other high level activities, that VO two max could come into play here. So when we see that you go up in higher levels of atmospheric pressure. Or excuse me, well, lower in this case, you're going to lose 1% of VO2 max for every 100 meters above 1,500 meters. So they're going to lose about 1% of the VO2 max because Denver is about 1,600 meters above sea level, which it comes down to you know, feet versus meters and blah, blah, blah. So what that all means is it's just going to take more effort for the body to produce the same amount of effort for those activities so you're going to see the heart rate increase. You're going to see a blood pressure increase. You're going to see the cardiac output, which is how much blood the, the body, the stroke volume, how much the body is pumping out to get everything moving there. Going tied all into this again, as I'm rambling, is that because the air pressure is lower, there's also less oxygen in the air. So the oxygen, the body's going to need to pull in more oxygen to offset for the decrease in pressure. So once again, it's looking to work harder to bring in the oxygen. There's less oxygen available, so it needs to work even harder to bring in that oxygen. And then as a result, your body is going to adapt by increasing all those levels of heart rate and blood pressure to keep that blood pumping and moving, getting through the lungs to oxygenate and, and feed the body because of the oxygen's energy. In turn, the body's going to fatigue out quicker. It's going to possibly uh, make guys just become more tired. The same amount of effort required to run the 40 might be a little bit more harder in the Denver atmosphere than in the Buffalo atmosphere. So once again, the, it, this is more or less after two or three days of where you're up there for a little bit versus if we're in there for the one day, they do know that some guys do struggle with that. And that could be due to the VO two maxes. Cause I'm sure they have that information available. They're never going to tell us that nor most people need to know that information, but that's where you're going to see guys maybe struggle a little bit. Why they struggle to adapt because when I just went over the air pressure is to be less oxygen available. They can't bring it in as efficiently. Thus you're going to fatigue out faster. So that really wraps up why they're going to struggle with that. There's a lot more to it, but that's what I could put in a few minutes without getting over the complex. Um, I did look back and see how Buffalo's fared in Denver. Going back to 1967, the bills have only played in Denver seven times. Now that's, due to how the conference is, is set up and with the divisions and whatnot. The Buffaloes only had two wins since 1967 in Denver. I don't know how much of that is tied to the atmospheric pressure versus the talent. Uh, for comparison, since sixty-seven, the Jets are 4-9. Dolphins are 4-4-1 four, four since sixty-six, And the Patriots are 6-19 since 1967. You could go down a rabbit hole with that whole thing, but there might be something to that East Coast-West Coast thing but also could be going into the atmospheric pressure aspects of that there. So I think that wraps everything up into a, a nice little bow there, but that could explain why we're having some of those issues. And hopefully we see more of a uh, rotation and maybe at the defensive line. Maybe we see more of that at the cornerback position. We see more different packages, maybe at wide receiver, just let these guys get some extra rest. So they're not getting gassed at uh, you know the fourth quarter when we really need them.
1: Get a lead. Sounds like you got to get a lead in this game because it's going to get more challenging as it moves along. Um, And, you know, one other point here, well, two other points. First of all, you know, it's not like these guys are going to visit Denver. They're going to play a football game, right? So maybe if somebody's been to Denver and and they're like, yeah, I didn't really notice anything, it's probably a lot different being a casual, uh, you know, a tourist versus going and being a high level performing athlete playing the sport of football. So there's probably some real challenges there. Also, I, I've seen this number floating around. Uh, people are talking about Josh Allen and how he played his college ball at Laramie, and it's you know over seven thousand feet above sea level, and, and they, which is like almost two thousand more feet than Denver. But I'm guessing, you know, look, Josh hasn't been to Wyoming in years. I'm not sure that's something that is going to be actually be helpful for him, based on that not being uh, you know, a place where he's conditioned to being uh, anytime recently. Am I wrong there?
0: Uh, I, I agree. I mean, he, he's been down in Buffalo for the past few years. The fact that he's played in a higher elevation does benefit him in a different way, which I'll get to in a second. But it's not like because he played in Wyoming, he's going to have an advantage, uh, Kari because he played at Wyoming. His body is acclimated to what he plays in Buffalo and you know, some of the surrounding areas. The one benefit he might have, and this just came off the top of my head, is he might understand how the ball carries in the less atmospheric pressure. So he might be able to put a little touch on it versus you know somebody who doesn't play there a whole lot. That's just total speculation theory. But I would think if you're familiar with your surroundings, you understand how the ball travels differently. There might be something to that. He might say, Hey, I don't have to put as much on it because I know I'm gonna get the same distance because of you know the less air pressure the ball has to fly through. So you might have to ask him that question, but that's definitely a you know something to think about. Uh, I will put in there personal experience. I did play volleyball in college. We did go to Denver when uh, I played my last year of uh, volleyball, and I could tell you when we were there after a few days playing volleyball, I felt I was in pretty good shape, but I felt gassed, and I'm thinking I didn't play a whole bunch, but I can still feel the effects of the. Increase in atmospheric pressure, excuse me, the increase in the uh, sea level difference, Buffalo compared to Denver. And I remember just being really tired uh, even after not playing a ton of volleyball because, frankly, it wasn't very good. But still, there's something really to it. It's just not a made-up thing.
1: All right, let's get to the actual injury report here. It's pretty light. and In fact, there's only really two players with a designation, uh, those being Jaquan Johnson, who remains out with an ankle. He won't play this week. Uh, And then Lee Smith, who's questionable with a knee. So let's focus the the last portion of our discussion here on Lee Smith and this knee knee injury that leads him to be questionable, as well as Taron Johnson, who suffered a concussion uh, during the Steelers game, was limited Tuesday, limited Wednesday, but full on Thursday. So what can you tell us about Taron Johnson and Lee Smith? So Lee Smith, he's real interesting because I saw when he hurt his knee, it was
0: his uh, left knee this was resolved the rough in the passer call. And I think it was the second quarter and Josh Allen got tackled back and Smith was trying to move out of the way. Allen's helmet hit the inside portion of Lee's knee as he was trying to run back behind him and it hit him. And you could tell that he was walk around gingerly. It definitely hurt him, but he stayed in the game and continued playing. And I was like, well, okay. Bumps and bruises, no big deal. And I was really surprised to see him on the injury report. So I was like, okay, well, He's an older player. You get hit in the knee, it might hurt. So he's limited all week in practice, and then he's questionable. I'm not the one treating him. I'm not the one examining him. I don't know what he hit that it's hurting him that much that he's questionable. It might just be you hit it just right, and there's some swelling in there, and there's a lot of pain, he's still dealing with that. He's a 50-50 shot. Of course, I'm sure the team knows whether he's going to play or not, but I don't know why he wouldn't play based off of what we saw in film. So if he does play, he's going to be a big benefit because the Broncos run defense is pretty bad from what I've seen on some of the people more intelligent than I am. And having Smith as an extra blocker would be beneficial to the run game, who frankly, we need to get that thing going more consistently as we inch toward the playoffs. So he's 50, 50 in my book, but I don't see why he couldn't play based off of what we saw in video. Uh, As for Teron Johnson, uh, he got through a concussion. This was the result of hitting James Conner, uh, trying to tackle him, and I think it was the third quarter. Or it could have been late in the second quarter as well. But anyway, I figured he was going to be out because concussions take between seven and ten days to fully get through. This was Johnson's first document NFL concussion from what I could find. And I've been doing this since 2017. So hes I've been following his career the entire time uh, that he's been in Buffalo. And... It doesn't mean that because you have one concussion, you come back quicker than, you know, two, three, four, five, whatnot. It was so with Mitch Morris, but it's impressive. They came back as quick. There might've been an issue where he's having symptoms and then resolve and they push him through the protocol and he wasn't having any reproduction symptoms. They said, okay, you're good to go. Hence why the protocol is there. So I'm happy that he's playing because he had a hell of a game on uh, Sunday night and have him play again. Uh, Saturday would be a huge benefit to the defense. Cause otherwise we have Serrano who is good in his own right, but we've seen Teron Johnson be the better player. So to have him back, I'm just going to say, I'm glad he's back and not question how he can get through the concussion protocol so quickly.
1: Well, I hope the rest of our discussions this year are just like this where we only have a couple of players <laughs> and, and it sounds like they're, they both have a good chance of playing. So uh, we appreciate what you bring to us each and every week. And obviously the insight on the Bills playing in altitude was was a really extra special bonus for us this week. So as always, we appreciate your expertise and making time for us each and every week. All right, let's close out the week. Let's close out this podcast with my predictions for Saturday. One other quick note here. I have been giving you my NFL draft prospects to watch on Saturday, but for two reasons, I don't have any to give you this week. First of all, there's not a full slate of college football games. We've really reach the end of the regular season, and it is conference championship Saturday. The other thing is that the Bills play at 430, literally eliminating almost half of the schedule because it's going to bleed into the afternoon and late slate of games. So focus on the Buffalo Bills as they look to get this win and clinch the AFC East. My predictions for Saturday. I have five of them for you. Number one, I have that the Bills will force multiple turnovers on defense. The Broncos like to turn over the football. They have the worst turnover differential in the NFL and have at least two giveaways in all but four games this season. I don't think that is going to change on Saturday against a really good Bills defense that is taking away the football quite a bit here lately. So my first prediction is that the Bills come away with at least two takeaways on defense against the Broncos. Number two, I have that the Bills will score 24 points in the first half. I think the Bills are going to prioritize a fast start in this game, be very aggressive early, try to get a lead, eliminate some of those conditioning concerns playing in Denver at altitude. So I think the Bills will be aggressive early, go after a depleted secondary that only has three cornerbacks that are healthy. I think the Bills will want to get an early lead, and uh, I think they will accomplish that by scoring 24 points in the first half of the football game. Number three, I have 16 combined catches from Stefan Diggs and Cole Beasley. That is an average of eight apiece. Simply put, Denver doesn't have the dudes on defense to match up. They only have three healthy corners. One of them is a mid-round rookie, Michael Ojemudia. One of them is Devontae Busby, who they cut this year and have since brought back because they have to. And the other one is Will Parks, who made a season debut last week. They don't have the guys to match up with Diggs, Beasley, Davis, McKenzie. I I think that Diggs and Beasley are going to run circles around those corners and, and have quite a bit of production between the two of them. Number four. I have that the Bills will gain at least 150 rushing yards. Denver has not stopped the run well at all this year. And I think the Bills are coming in with some momentum with their run game, particularly when you think about the way they closed out the Pittsburgh game, getting the football back with 7 minutes and 11 seconds left in the fourth quarter and running out the game. I think that will carry over to this Denver game. They'll find some rushing success early. And they'll be able to finish out the game with even more rushing success. So uh, 150 yards is quite a bit. The Bills have only got there twice this year against New England and the Chargers. And Denver has held all but three of their opponents under 150 yards. But I think that the Bills kind of riding some momentum here with their run game and uh, potentially having a lead and really kind of needing to work clock Uh, And just opportunity against a defense that is giving up quite a bit on the ground this year, I think the Bills will gain at least 150 rushing yards on Saturday. Number five is my prediction on the game. I'm thinking you probably know where this is headed based on my attitude at the beginning of the podcast and the four predictions that I made regarding the game. I do believe that the Bills win this football game. Do I have some concern that they may not happen? Of course I do. I have concern about every single Bills game because I always believe there's a path to success for every team who plays any other NFL team. With that said, you have a Buffalo Bills team that is superior in terms of talent and experience. You have a major mismatch at the quarterback position when you think about Josh Allen against Denver's defense and then Drew Locke, who has not played well this year. I know he's coming off a good game against Carolina, but you have him going up against A Sean McDermott, Leslie Frazier coach defense that's playing as well as it has lately. I like my chances for the Bills to win this game. And afterwards, we celebrate and we win this division for the first time since 1995. Another narrative and talking point that we can bury in the past. I'm looking forward to it. I'm not going to make you wait till Monday to get my reaction. I'm going to do a Victory Sunday podcast for you. So whenever the Bills game is over, uh, I will record the podcast and set it to drop uh, on mi- at midnight on Sunday. So you'll have it on Sunday for you uh, to hear my reaction to the game and, and hopefully recapping uh, the Bills win and, and giving us a, a Victory Sunday podcast. And then what I'm going to do with Christmas – falling at the end of next week. It's actually the 25th. I'm going to give you five pods, but they're going to start on Sunday. So we're going to go Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday next week. And then we're going to take off Christmas and we'll pick things back up again on Monday, the 28th. So don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review, and share the podcast. Go Bills. And I'll catch up with you again on Sunday.